When most people think about starting a fashion business, the first thing that comes to mind is definitely not its legal foundation. However, as your fashion brand grows, there's many ways to use law as a tool to protect both you and your business from all sorts of legal issues. My guest today is here to talk about all the legal pillars you need to be thinking about as a fashionpreneur. She's Canada's top fashion lawyer and trademark agent who is recognized by the Law Society of Ontario as a certified specialist in trademarks law. With over 10 years of experience practicing branding and fashion law, she provides a deep understanding of brand protection strategies that help manage, enforce, commercialize and protect brands both domestically and internationally. Welcome Ashley Froze to the podcast as we sit down to talk about the legal basics of a fashion business, protecting yourself from brand pirates, and the big secret to becoming a successful entrepreneur. So fashion lawyer extraordinaire, Ashley Froze, welcome to the pod. Hi. So pumped to have you on here. You've... uh, You've been quite the busy bee on, you know, all of our social media. You're all over Instagram lives lately. Uh, I read your interview on Medium yesterday. So oh. needless to say, thank you for taking the time to chat. Of course, of course, of course. Always, always here to contribute. Awesome. So, so thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, always. Um, so I'm expecting most people are like tuning into this episode and like, thinking they're either super ready to nerd out on this and be like, Oh yeah. Like I'm going to get information here that I've never got before. Or they're like, yeah, I'm ready to flip to the next episode. Um, don't flip. Don't, don't do f- it. Don't flip because <laughs> you know, the legal foundation of a business, especially in a 2020 in a 2020 world uh, where we sell products all over the globe is incredibly important. So uh, if you're even thinking about flipping, I, I, I encourage you to, uh, to stay tuned because we got the legal fashion master with us today. Um, Amen to that. Yeah. Now we're going to get through a lot of nitty gritty. Um, we're going to try to keep things digestible and high level. But before, you know, we get into all of that, I think uh, a lot of people are probably wondering, just like I wondered the first time we met, was like, how the hell do you become a fashion lawyer? Right. Right. So, so can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, and I can tell you how I became a fashion lawyer. Yeah. So basically, I was a mega nerd during undergrad, went T for undergrad, always wanted to be a lawyer, worked uh, part-time during school years, full-time during the summers, took a year off in between degrees at this anti-counterfeiting law firm. Very niche. So it just dealt with uh, getting rid of counterfeit products. So the clients were Nike, Disney, Louis Vuitton, Fendi, Gucci, you know, Beyblades, uh, sorts of consumer goods products so because i'd worked there for so long during the time before i got into law school i was doing the work of articling students and i went to law school at osgoode uh interned with un that was super cool came back and started working as a lawyer and i worked in intellectual property law and what i realized early on was that and this was i'm going to myself actually so this was before instagram was around and uh, twitter had just come up and blogs were thing and there are no lawyers really using blogs twitter social media as a business development tool so i joined on to these and i started to realize that there was fashion law movement that was pretty established in the states and was pretty established in europe there's nothing really happening in canada because i'd had so much experience prior to law school i thought well i can actually add value and contribute to the conversation rather than just passively taking in the information 
So I started Canada's first fashion law blog uh, way back in the day. And it looked at sort of government, uh, business, and laws affecting the Canadian fashion industry from a very Canadian perspective. And it was the first of its kind. I wrote the first academically published article on fashion law within the legal community. Um, and there, obviously, there were lawyers that had fashion clients, but there wasn't anyone that was really focusing on the business nuances of the fashion industry. So I really tried, and I saw it as an opportunity and so really, truth be told, I sort of created this fashion law in Canada, threw myself into incubators, accelerators, always voraciously trying to learn as much as I can. And so when you're dealing with an industry, right, there's going to be all sorts of, of legal issues that come into play, corporate, commercial, intellectual property, employment, real estate, etc. But when you start to an industry focus, it means that you have a deeper appreciation of the nuances of that business, of that industry, so you can apply the laws in a more um, constructive, pinpointed way. So if you come to me, for example, I'm already going to know that you're going to have to be dealing with seamstresses, fit models, uh, influencers, sales agents, brick and mortar. Like I sort of see the trajectory of your business, perhaps at a more to in-depth level that another lawyer who might just be an IP lawyer would appreciate. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So you mentioned like you, you started this blog and um, you know, you're diving into to all these issues, carving out a niche in, in fashion, but mm -hmm. like you, you eventually come to, to start your own firm. How long were you kind of was there a niche, like a fashion niche at, at your, at the firm you were at or like, how is that all working? Well, it was, it was, so whatever there was, whenever the floor, so I was on Bay street for 10 years, fast track right. to partner within six years, which is pretty quick for the Bay street world. And there wasn't fashion law per se at these practices because I sort of created this movement. Now, eventually some other firms, you know, bigger firms, they would, they sort of created their own department and of course, each of them reached out to me, but I never wanted to be a cog in someone else's wheel. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, totally. Also, these law firms, the big law firms that would have a fashion law practice, well, they're dealing with large multinational corporations. The independent Canadian designers, they're priced out. Do you know what I mean? So I've always been of the mindset that I want to be an ally of people's success and its relationship driven my business model, not just transactional of like one and done. Let me see how much I can get from you and inflated um, you know, hourly rates, et cetera. So, um, so I was on Bay Street for 10 years. And then frankly, I tired of the bullshit of Bay Street. And I was like, you know what? I've got my own client base. I've had my own client base from two years out of law school. Why don't I just start my own firm and get rid of the middleman and build something that is different from what everyone else on Bay Street is doing. Now the Bay Street caliber for sure, I will ne never integrate that. And that's something I spent a decade sort of learning and honing my skills at from. But that ivory tower construct of law doesn't have to be the only way to practice law. So I launched this firm and it's really a law firm that focuses on B2C branded product services and talent. So influencers, celebrity, DJs, models, fashion, cosmetics, cannabis, 
food, beverage, hospitality, like all of that dope bread. If you're shaping pop culture, that's our jam. And we get it intuitively. Yeah, that's great. And I think like, you know, A, you've created a real niche for yourself. B, you're doing it with a sense of purpose. And C, you're giving, you know, entrepreneurs and, and, and you know, other little guys um, the platform and the ability to make, you know, the, law, the legal side of things approachable because, yeah. you know, law can be intimidating, right? And uh, a lot of that comes with maybe the price tag, but also it's just, you know, it can just be really overwhelming, which is great. It's definitely overwhelming and intimidating for sure. Yeah. And that's why we have you here to clear all this stuff up for everyone. Yeah, exactly. So from our end, you know, we really try and position ourselves to be allies for our clients and law is not intuitive. So we're trying to sort of knowledge is power, terror, every tower construct. So every week I'm issuing out newsletters. I do speaking engagements all the time and I try and do it in a way that's relevant and digestible, not ipso facto heretofore Nobody wants to hear that, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So incredible. This is awesome. You're, you know, the queen of fashion law in in Canada. You're a trademark guru, uh, top 1,000 trademark lawyers worldwide. Um, Tons of knowledge to be discussed here. But, you know, sometimes I find that like entrepreneurs younger, or it doesn't matter what age, but like people that are a little bit more green to the process of starting a business um, might not even know like those first initial steps. So like, in terms of, you know, you, you have an, you're at the ideation stage, you get excited, you build a product and then you're like, oh shit, like I should probably legally start a business. Uh, wh- what does that look like? And like, is there, is there a specific, um, you know, legal entity that is best for, right. let's say a fashion business? So I would say that when you're coming up with concepts, Steps, and you know that you have something viable and you know that you have the wherewithal to make it go. I mean, you know, and I, I tend to, I don't mince my words. People tend to generally know what they say. If you want to have a hobby, go and play. You know what I mean? That's fine. Do your thing. If you actually think that you have something and you have the chutzpah to actually go for it. Okay. Let's sit down and talk. One of the things is that head and and don't want to deal with legal issues. You're only going to screw yourself over and it's only going to become more issue down the road, which becomes more expensive. So first things first, let's talk about as soon as you have an idea, you're putting it down into a business plan, into a client, into a pit document, some kind of tangible form will already the copyright protection can exist. Already intellectual property protection is protecting your creative ingenuity. And that's the whole construct of IP law, intellectual property laws. So number one, you want to look at protecting concepts through copyright protection and if you're starting to be like hey buddy who's got money that might fund you i've got this great idea do you want in on this business non-disclosure agreement so that's a small fine written contract written we always want written contract that basically is claiming that you have this idea it's proprietary to you you're disclosing it for this purpose and they can't rip it off so from day one you want to start to protect yourself um, now you're starting to get some traction and you want to move forward. You want to look at what is the sort of entity from which you're launching your business. So the first might be, there's sort of three general uh, platforms, a partnership, a sole proprietor, or an incorporation. Sole proprietor and incorporation are probably the most common. So the one is a sole proprietor. It's easy to do. You just kind of start operating your business as your own person. 
but there's drawbacks to that in that now you personally are liable for your business, which means that your personal assets are also tied into whatever you're doing commercially. So if you get sued for whatever reason and you own a house or, a, you know, you've got savings, they're now subject to risk. So that's not the best way to go forward. The corporation, on the other hand, it's a um, separate legal entity from you. The corporate assets are separate from your own personal assets. If you're starting to get investors to come in, you can build out, you just, you know, share structures so that people can invest in your actual company and get equity stake in that. So generally, I would say that incorporations are the best way to move forward and to also, because you want to position yourself for future growth. Hopefully, you're not going to be a one-person shop in your basement the whole time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you touched on a lot of stuff there. So I, I think um, I just want to like kind of circle back and, and, and talk about like an NDA or a non-disclosure agreement. Um, yeah. Like, you know, to me, you hear about these things all the time. Uh, like how, how legally binding is an NDA and like what kind of ramifications for, let's say, someone that is maybe a potential investor where you have a meeting, you lay some, some facts out on the table that maybe are, are proprietary right. or, or, you know, confidential. Like what, what are some of the legal ramifications uh, that can help protect an entrepreneur or business owner in that sense? So I think that what you need to, what everyone needs to realize is you can do everything you can to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's in the legal side, but doesn't mean that control any unknown third party and how they're going to act. Right. For, for it's sure. not like you have an NDA and it's, a cape of savior for the rest of your life forever across the world would love it It'd be unfortunate for lawyers because they don't have work to do but it just means that in the event people are shady people will get twisted people are sloppy something's going to go wrong for sure and someone's going to screw you over in some way it just means a much better platform from which to assert your rights so let's take this in the two situations you have a contract that's written that's signed by both parties they screw you over breach of contract here you go. Easy. It's way easier to enforce your rights. The other is there's no written contract. It's pinky square. He said, she said, she said, he said, blah, 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 blah. There's no definition on this. And you're fighting over the fact that you actually agree to something. Whereas the signed contract, you get over that. Boom. Here it is. You screwed up. Now you're over perhaps maybe the validity of the agreement. But if you're doing it in the proper way, you should be in a much better position. So using the law as a tool, it's a business tool to help you manage risks. That's, think about law in that way. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I like what you said there. It's a lot easier. It's a lot more cut and dry if something's on paper signed than if it's yeah. he said, she said, right? So something exactly. to definitely keep in mind. So you, you, you t briefly touched on intellectual property on copyright, but like there's all sorts of different, um, uh, I guess I don't want to say things. I don't know what, for lack of a better word, but pillars of pillars, yes, of pillars right? So there's <laughs> patents, there's trademarks, there's, there's copyright. Can you kind of touch on uh, kind of what the nuances with, with all those terms sure. are? So there's five in Canada, there's five essential types of IP. There's patent protection, which is probably the sexiest um, and, and the most interesting to so patent is for something that's novel, non-obvious, and inventive. And you're basically it's your invention. So let's talk about it. I like to give practical tips because theory is great, but yeah. is even better. Right. I'm with you. Amen to that. So uh, an example would be something 
that has never been around before. So remember when Gap came out with that like stain guard, you can't drop wine on your shirt and it'll never stain. Yeah. It was a kind of fabric that had been engineered stain resistant, patent protection. That's, that's an example of that. Or for example, if there's a kind of, I don't know, manufacturing machine that speeds up cross-line stitch by a thousand or something because of something that was engineered, protection would be available for that. And a, a very obvious example is the first iteration of the bra that was patent protected because it had never been around before. So it's kind of interesting to me. So that's patent protection. Trademarks is going to be relevant to everything. So trademarks is the whole function of trademarks is if the consumer sees it and thinks, sees that trademark logo design and thinks, oh, that's that company. That's a trademark protection. The interesting thing with trademarks is when you start to view these things as sort of corporate assets is that the full function of trademarks is to manipulate consumer behavior, right? There's a reason why you buy this sneaker from Nike over Adidas because of whatever brand, whatever it, their, their, their hook is to buy you into it. Right. So the interesting thing with trademark is you can actually go really uh, deep into non-traditional trademark protection and get a monopoly over your brand in the marketplace. So if you're going to the cinema and there's a line for, as the lights go down. Remember when we went to the cinema back in the yeah, day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> back in the day, months ago. Like so long ago. <laughs> right? Um, the Lion's Roar, you knew that that movie was produced by Goldwyn Meyer. Right. That Lion's Roar is actually protected as a trademark. So if you see a woman that's walking and she's got red bottom soles, you know it's Christian Libertan shoes. Right. So it's interesting. If you see someone wearing a pair of jeans and they've got a red rectangle stitched into the side on the leg, you know, it's a Levi's. Levi's. Yeah. Right. So it's all of these things that are distinctive to that company that connotes in the consumer's mind, ah, that's that brand. Very manipulative. And you can create a monopoly through that. So trademarks and non-traditional trademark protection fashion world is a really interesting tool, business tool. Copyright protection, that's, you know, for your website designs, for your logo, maybe for your sketchbook that kind of stuff. Copyright protection is a very um, convoluted, complicated type of legislation where ultimately the purpose is to protect creator. But then when it comes to fashion, it, there's, there's exceptions to the, to the exceptions. And that's a whole other conversation that needs diagrams. <laughs> it becomes a little complicated. Okay. Industrial design protection is another type of IP. That's interesting. And then there's trade secrets which you protect through um, like confidentiality agreements, non-closure or confidentiality provisions within your actual employment agreement, independent contractor, manufacturing agreement, et cetera. Okay, interesting. So in terms of like, you know, trademark seems to be the one that really resonates with me in a fashion sense. Um, obviously brand and fashion is, is almost everything. Yeah. Um, so like for, for in a Levi's example, like, how how particular is that trademark like if, if another brand goes and puts a red tag on maybe not the butt but maybe it's like on the like the coin pocket of, of a piece right. of denim like is that it would that be considered a trademark infringement or like so this is the interesting thing i can give you the insight on levi's that what i've heard from you know around around the 
whatever on the street the work on the street so what's interesting is you know how i keep on sort of alluding to it's a business tool and a business strategy so that's the same kind of thing of okay what is distinctive to your company now let's architect folio to protect that so one of levi's strategies has done they've protected the red rectangle right then they've protected the rec rectangle with the levi's in and then the orange and then no color at all so basically they amassed i think it was like 10 versions of what that rectangle would be from specificity of color and what's on it down to complete sort of not obscurity but you know the opposite just, of specificity like broader yeah. and so for that they're able to enforce their rights in a much bigger way now i that other companies have thought about putting a square for example and Levi's have been more um, aggressive in how they're they're protecting themselves. So it's kind of interesting, and it's down to business savvy using the law for your advantage and using it from which to force your rights, which goes back to the strategy of law in the beginning that we talked about. Like so many of you listening to this episode, I spent a lot of time thinking about ways to generate incremental revenue in my business. Should we be advertising on social media? How about Google AdWords? It's totally overwhelming. And then it hit me. Isn't it easier to market and sell to people who are already customers or prospective customers? If you run an e-commerce store on Shopify, you have to think of Spently when you're looking to elevate the experience of your current customers and hot prospects. They make it easy for store owners to create beautiful email receipts, abandoned checkout emails, and other notifications with branded, personalized marketing messages and upsells. It's the easiest way to drive repeat purchases and convert abandoned checkouts with an easy-to-use platform and a top-notch analytics dashboard. Best of all, it only takes 30 seconds to install the app from the Shopify App Store. You just sign up, create some branded templates, and voila! I've tried other providers, and trust me when I say this, that Spendly is the best at what they do. You can take my word for it, or just try it out for free and see what all the fuss is about. All you have to do is follow the Spendly link in my Instagram bio, at Mr. Andrew Coelho. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Right, absolutely. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so a little while back, I heard you on Instagram live with a friend of mine, Mario Lavarado. I actually went to high, high school. Yeah, went to high school with him. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, what a small world, right? That's awesome. He's good yeah. peeps. He's really good peeps. Yeah, um, he mentioned on on the IG live that uh, you know he was one of your clients and that you've done some work for him on a trademark uh, in a trademark capacity. Um, specifically, you guys talked yep. about trademarks in China, and I'm wondering, like obviously there's there's regional limitations to trademarks i'm assuming based on that discussion and and like how how regional is it like how many trademarks would you know i need let's say for my brand monty and co worldwide right so it, it it depends and this is where you start to this is strategy so you know from the trademark protection trademark is protected in country by country jurisdictions However, in Europe, you can get a European trademark that protects you in 20 countries. The UK used to be a part of it, but then Brexit screwed everything up. So you can get sort of regional protection in Europe, but then China, for example, they treat China and Hong Kong as separate jurisdictions. Right. So it's interesting. There's a lot of different nuances of how things go around. If 
it was to talk to you about your trademark protection, I would sort of say, okay, what are your primary markets? Probably Canada, the US, maybe Europe as well. Okay, let's not just do UK, let's do the whole thing. Where are you manufacturing? Are you manufacturing in India, Turkey? Um, you know, maybe you have luxurious leather and you're doing it in Argentina. Maybe you're doing it in China. Toronto. Okay, great, love that. So we'd look at that. Then we'd also look at, okay, do you have an online brand? How pervasive are you? And then let's start to look at proactively protecting in the countries that are known to be counterfeiters that are going to make more challenge for you to enforce your rights. Because a lot of countries are first to file or use-based. So if you're not selling in those countries and you haven't filed in them, then you don't have a lot of rights to protect in them. So it's sort of looking at, okay, let's think about this strategically, because I do have clients that are not manufacturing in China and they haven't been uh, commercially available in China, but run into issues. And basically there's people in China that act as brand trolls. They start to see that this bag was on Vogue or this person, you know, this bag was profiled and had X amount of social hits. It's valuable brand. I'm going to register it because Chinese laws are more favorable to Chinese companies, I'm going to now make you pay to get the rights back. So it's like it's a, they're brand pirates, brand trolls. So right. it's, it's interesting for sure. So, I mean, I guess in a global world that we're in now where, you know, I make products in Toronto, I can ship anywhere in the world. Anyone can access my brand digitally. Like effectively everyone is at risk unless you have, you know, the proper yeah, document. I mean, totally. But you kind of go down this rabbit hole of, okay, let's be pragmatic and let's, you know, do, do we really care about getting protection in Ghana? Probably not. But do we care about China? Yeah, probably because we know there'd be a thorn in our side if someone is opportunistic there, right. you know? Fair enough. Um, and it's also what's the purchasing power. So I read something that the millennial population in China, like 250 million people. That's just the millennial population. Yeah. So the event that in five years time, you do in fact actually want to get into that market because you get like a fraction of the sales. You're good. You're doing well, you know? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I alluded to a little bit to like, our online world, the, you know, the 2020 or the modern day uh, yeah. e-commerce world. Yes. Is there any compliance issues or legal issues that brands, companies can maybe overlook and, and potentially run into uh, issues in terms of building that online presence? So, I mean, the law is the law. It doesn't really impact it just because things are online doesn't mean that it's a lawless world. You know what I mean? Right. So there's still like competition law, advertising laws, um, intellectual property laws, contract laws. It's still applicable to the online world. It's just uh, the reach is wider um, and you have a better, an easier, it's, it's easier for people to rip you off. You know what I mean? Out there so much. But then there's going to be little nuances of, of additional laws that will become more prominent like privacy data laws um uh digital marketing laws like compliance with canada's anti-spam legislation it's going to be hard it's going to be 
there's going to be more opportunities of counterfeiters. So, you know, you're going to want to model that a little bit better. So it's the same kind of issues, but just bigger, but it's also the market's bigger too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you, you actually just, I want to talk about this a little bit. You mentioned counterfeiting now a couple of times. Uh, we talked about brand pirates. Um, yeah. Can we distinguish a little bit for, you know, maybe people that are a little bit more interested in, in, in these terms, we hear them a, bit, a lot in fashion, um, the difference between counterfeiting and, and piracy. Oh, okay. So fashion design piracy, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So counterfeiting is basically you're the flea market and there's, you know, Nike, but it's really probably sort of created and, or it says Nike or Nike. I like it's confusingly similar and you know it's not manufactured by Nike Inc out of Portland right I mean so that's counterfeiting it's either a complete ripoff it's unauthorized it's not out of the Nike approved supply chain that's counterfeiting and that's your basic kind of stuff when you talk about fashion design piracy it's a little bit different than the brand trolls I was talking about but fashion design piracy is a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more subtle and to some extent it can be a little bit more challenging to enforce rights again so it's basically kind of the H&M Forever 21 business model where you come up with I don't know let's let's talk about a very distinctive bag that we all probably the Birkin bag for example so you come up with a Birkin bag the counterfeiting would be it's unauthorized and it's Hermes Brand. like a knockoff like right. Hermes with an S or Hermes with the S but it just it's not it's obviously not manufactured by Hermes right gotcha okay the fashion design piracy would be the same configuration of the Birkin bag it wouldn't be called Birkin and it wouldn't be called Hermes so it would be called like the froze big daddy bag but it's a com- complete knockoff of what the actual Birkin bag looks like so when I first see it, I'm like, oh, shit, no, that's a Birkin, but it's completely branded different. So notorious um, uh, defendants in this are H Forever 21. You know when there's Eau Couture, and then yeah. all of a sudden in two weeks, you see it on the high street. Yeah, well, fast fashion one right? Be, right, they're not pretending to be Balmain. They're Forever 21. They've ripped off the designs of the actual garment, the distinctive elements of the design of the actual garment so like what kind of legal recourse would a brand have in in either case like if i'm a balmain and i'm literally walking you know down a street in in paris and i see my literally my design in a forever 21 window for 9.99 like what can i do about that you absolutely have recourse so there's there remember how i said copyright protection is like convoluted it's kind of it's 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 complicated Right. So you can certainly do copyright infringement, moral rights infringement, uh, trademark infringement, if, you on the, if you've protected it, passing off, trade dress, uh, um, unfair competition, interference, like tortious interference with economic relations. Like there's a whole myriad, if you're getting savvy, of ways that you can enforce. And there's also the court of public opinion too. So you can also sort of say, Hey, look, my demand letter with backed up by all of this legal stuff, you know, and oops, you know, maybe a reporter starts to hear about it as well. So there's way 
needs to navigate this and, and try and get settlement from them or where they're removing the goods. Like my view is that when things go to litigation, it just means that the lawyers win because it's so expensive. It's just me taking money from you, putting it in my pocket. What I would rather do is get a business solution that's quick, expeditious, gets the job done, deals with whatever damages so that you can move on with your life and your business and take that money that you would have sunk into litigation into actually your business, but that issue has been dealt with. So sometimes settlement negotiations that might have a confidentiality provision, right, they always do, that people can't then mouth off, well, they agreed that they were wrong and they took it. It's just, there was an issue and now there's not an issue because there's been some settlement that's been negotiated. Right. So there's always legal recourse. It just, it just depends on how you do it. Um, and, and also how much of a platform you've built for yourself from which to enforce your rights. Right. And I was just about to say that, I guess it, the punchline is that it all comes down to having those, uh, you know, the legal components of your business really set up properly uh, in the event that something like this happens. Right. Right. Because the law is basically a business, it, A, it's a business tool and it's a tool by which to contain risk. Right. Right. And that makes sense. Total sense. Yeah. So in a world of like, you know, we live in a world now where collaborations are happening like all the time, whether right. it's like something as little as in Instagram live to, you know, brand like companies and brands that aren't even in the same industries like you know right. one that comes to mind is uh, off-white and and ikea maybe one of the biggest ones lately right um so in a scenario like that is there like specific commercial agreements dotting the i's and crossing the t's of these things because yeah. for smaller brands i, I think collaborations are, are a little bit more frivolous like oh let's do this let's have a contest but i'm guessing in the scope of a, a collaboration that big there would be some sort of contractual kind of uh, signed agreement right well, there should be some kind of contract regardless of your size, right? Sure. So if you have like an influencer that's marketing your stuff, okay? And let's say that they're doing, I don't know, that's, you know, they're marketing children's stuff. And then all of a sudden that weekend, they're snorting Coke on their thing, wearing your children's shirt or something. Like that's something you want to have morality provisions that they have to govern themselves accordingly to mm -hmm. what constructs of your your brand is right so that's just fundamental it's the rule is whenever you have a third party working with you investor employee con contractor supplier manufacturer licensee licensor situation brand ambassador influencer as soon as you're bringing in a third party the best way that you can manage that relationship and manage the risks that go with it is through a written contract so it doesn't always be your 50 page off-white ikea contract but at least it should be a three-pager bare minimum right one of these things that you can like you don't have to go to a lawyer every single time like if you know that you're going to do influencer marketing get run really good your marketing agreement draft it up and then repurpose it and change the business terms it's one month to three months they pay this much they pay that much right. it's for this t-shirt or that hat but at least have it the one template that you can use and, and repurpose for the specificity of it. Yeah, because, you know, and that's really practical advice, probably counterintuitive to, uh, 
you know, what most lawyers would say, but I think for especially younger brands, like legal fees can become expensive. So that's a really practical yeah. tip on how to protect yourself. Right. Um, right. And, and keep costs down. Yeah. I mean, my philosophy and I've got multinational corporations and I'm still really, really cheap and frugal with their money. I'm a cheap person. So I just import that. But you know, the way I try and my clients is that this is a relationship game. I want to be in this in 20 years time with you, not just a one action, one and done, you know, let me gouge you for money. It doesn't work. You trust that way. You can't build a relationship that way. Yeah. I love that. That's, uh, I'm glad you said that. And I think that's uh, almost like, yeah, you need to have the same mindset when building a business or a brand is, is to make good long-term decisions. Um, so from experience with your clients or your own firsthand experience building a business, what would you say is the you know, secret ingredient to becoming successful? Work hard. <laughs> Work really hard and learn all the time. Like I've been practicing for 14 years and I'm still reading articles weekly for sure and updates and law. Um, so I think getting being complacent is a great way for someone to overtake you. And nothing can can replace hard work. I, I really, you know, I really believe that. And finding something that you care about and you're passionate about won't make it seem like work. It's just interesting, you know? So do you think hard work is enough? Or like, do you think that hard work is like one uh, characteristic of, of an entrepreneur or, or business owner that can kind of push you over the edge in terms of like your competition? I think, I don't know. I think with entrepreneurship, so a sort of savvy that you either have or you don't have, there's an intuition. You know what I mean? Like that, I don't think that you can learn. And I think that there's an entrepreneurial spirit that lies within or it doesn't. Okay. And you know, like in law school, really smart people, but you look at them and you can just see some are great employees very lucrative they'll do well but they're not out there generating business generating leads sort of pioneering new way of practicing law doesn't discount that they're smart or that they work hard but it's that like that savvy that i guess drive and like um, the creativity just like a, yeah or like it's a like, thinking outside the box thing yeah it's like a combination of different traits that like right make an entrepreneur what an entrepreneur and i don't is. think you can teach it I don't think so because some things like it's just a soft skill that's intuitive right maybe you don't realize it's a skill until you realize that other people don't, don't have think it. that way yeah like oh sucks to be you <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i guess it depends on what right. your perspective is or your goals are right, right? yes that's very true very little um, response so you you worked in a, a firm uh, you left to pursue your own dreams, your own, your own passions, your own goals. I'm sure, you know, with any move like that, or just any move in general, um, you can face some negative energy. Um, how, how do you deal with negative energy? Here's the thing. Like, it's easier to hate than create. And there's people who, like, constructive criticism is one thing. Yeah. Constructive feedback from people that get it and that, you know, are value adds. But haters, they're going to hate. Let them fester. It's background noise and it's not relevant to me. Not to be obnoxious, but if, you, if it's constructive criticism that is valuable for me or they're calling 
me on my shit. Like I'm not a patient person. I get that, you know, and they're calling me on that. Or have you thought about approaching it this way? That's something more than, well, you're a Bay Street lawyer. You should have stayed there. Why would you do that? You can't do that. Well, yeah, you know what? 90% of my clients came with me. Turns out I can, right. you know? So it de- it's always context. It always depends on the, the who and the why. What's their motivation, you know? Yeah, I get it. I mean, I kind of have it planted in my head where it's like, have the humility to like listen to people, uh, especially people that want to offer an opinion or give you some advice, but also like, that doesn't mean that they're right. And like, don't hold that as like this, like, you know, this ultra criticism that you're forced to listen to just, you know, have the ability to, to, to hear it, but also process it and decide if that's right or wrong for you. Right. So like, like there's something beautiful to just believing in yourself. And if you've done the hard work and you're savvy and it's not just a whim and you're not flipping here and flipping there and just, you know, like, anchored but you have a belief in yourself and a belief in your ideas it's a beautiful thing and there's nothing more motivating than sort of proving the haters wrong too but i don't even subscribe to that because i don't care about them because it's not relevant so yeah, i'm just doing what i gotta do uh, i i just watched the whole michael jordan last dance thing and um yeah. it's quite healthy i mean i don't want to say healthy might be the right word but I think it's okay to put a chip on your shoulder um, from the haters and use that as motivation. But I think you need to find the balance between letting it, right. letting it overpower you and, and yeah. kind of your mindset and your emotions and stuff like that. Right. So, yeah, no, he was uh, pretty extraordinary, very extraordinary, inspiring person uh, to kind of model your uh, behavior around, whether it's, you know, in an entrepreneurial world, in a legal world, doesn't matter if you can yeah. like have that strong mindset. Um, right. I think you can go a long way. Well, I think this is a perfect time to end off. We have talked about a lot. You've provided so much value. Uh, oh, and I think we're leaving on a, on an end note before I do let you go though. Can people hit you up? Where can people find you? Uh, so they can always find me on the firm's website, froze f-r-o-e-s-e law.com um and otherwise on instagram at froze underscore law so we're around let us know hit her up ashley froze the canadian fashion legal queen get in touch with her she's incredible obviously you can tell from this podcast thanks so much for doing this and i look forward to uh keeping in touch and keeping up with all your doings online and And this is awesome it's great i love these podcasts they're they're a great friendly way to get things out there and um, information is power so thank you you've been listening to the andrew quello show if you enjoyed this episode it would mean the world to me if you can rate and review us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts don't forget to follow me on instagram at mr andrew quello And make sure to visit my website at andrewquello.ca to subscribe to my email newsletter. I hold a weekly giveaway and the only way to find out about it is if you're in my community of fashionpreneurs.